Hey, if you are new here today, whether it's your first, your third, your hundredth, thousandth time, so grateful that you are here. Your presence here makes us all better. And I trust, as I said in the prayer a little bit ago, you are not here by mistake, but God desires you to be here for reasons I don't know, whether it's a message, a song, a prayer, a chat out in the parking lot later, whatever it is, I trust God has you here for a purpose. And so I am grateful you are here. We've been doing a deep dive into the topic of forgiveness. We're in week four. We have one more week, though the week after that's Easter, which kind of had something to do with forgiveness, I guess. And I'm just curious. We've had these messages. We have a book that a lot of us have been going through each week. We have an extra prayer journal that some of you are going through. We have a few life groups that have been meeting all around this topic of forgiveness. And I just wonder, I hope, do you feel like you're starting to grow in your understanding of this issue a little bit, huh? A little bit? Yeah. I like that resounding, yeah. That's good. Yeah, I am too. And uh, I hope you are because Forgiveness is this thing we think we understand until we open ourselves to and go, oh man, this is multifaceted. And so we've been looking at it from a bunch of different angles, trusting that one of these things is going to really stick with you. And when I entered this series a few weeks back, I said, I trust this is a life-changing series. And I mean that. If just one life says, you know what, I have a hard work to do on this and I'm pressing forward, that is a success of a series, and I trust there will be more than just one life that will be changed based on our deep dive of forgiveness. Now today, we're going to do—we're going to travel back to the ancient Middle East. We're going to see Jesus Christ, the master of forgiveness, at work in his craft. So we're going to read together from John 8. It's going to be chapter—excuse me, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. This is an account that some of you may be familiar with. Some of you, it may be the first time you hear it, but we're going to look at it with fresh eyes and see the master at work. John 8, starting at verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. Now a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down, he taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? You see, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down. He wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept on demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away, one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. So Jesus stood up again, and he said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? 
No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Thank God for the reading of his true word. Early in the morning, the Sanhedrin, that is the religious leaders and the Pharisees, came to confront Jesus. Early in the morning, they would not typically meet early in the morning. It was all about their trap, trying to trap Jesus. See, they knew Jesus would be teaching at the temple, and they knew he would have a crowd. Something Jesus did, that was a pattern he did. Now, this would be on par with if someone came in here, busted in here right now with the full intention of putting on a show by dragging someone caught fully in their sin and trying to, in humiliation, confront Jesus, to trap him, to stop him in the middle of this teaching. Now, consider this situation. Through this entire account, these religious leaders, the Pharisees, they don't care at all for this woman's well-being. They're using her as a tool for their own devious means. And Jesus is busy teaching people the word of God, trying to encourage people to follow God in all their ways. And it's the very, it's the, well, the living word of God, teaching the written word of God, and that has the power to change lives. And these religious leaders come and interrupt that for a circus act to try and trap Jesus. They should have been honoring and upholding the sanctity of the word of the Lord, but instead, this is what they did. It is wrong every single way you cut it. Then we consider the woman. Now, there's zero question that she is guilty of the accused sin. It says that she was caught in the act after all. And they put her in front of the crowd. It's almost certain she was unclothed. Imagine what she must be feeling. The shame, the guilt, the embarrassment, the fear. Now, the Jewish leaders are already being selective in what laws they're upholding because the Mosaic law they cite requires that both parties of adultery are to be stoned. And if the woman was caught in the act, that means the man was somewhere nearby and they did not bring him before Jesus. And here's their trap. If Jesus refused the stoning, then he would be charged with contradicting the law of God as spelled out in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But if, on the other hand, he confirmed the verdict of the Pharisees, he would lose his reputation of compassion and grace. And also, he'd be acting outside of the Roman rule and law, which had the power to sentence others to death. So he'd be going outside of the governmental jurisdiction. But I am sure we can deduce from reading this that in their pride and arrogance, the religious leaders felt like they had a fail-safe plan. There's only two things Jesus can do, and we got them both covered. We got them. Jesus is kind of slippery, though, isn't he? <laughs> can you say that? Jesus is slippery? You know what I mean. He's the master of finding the third way. He doesn't respond right away. It says they kept 
demanding an answer from him. You know, the first time I read this, I just imagined, you know, you don't fill in the gaps a lot when you first hear this story. And I just imagined these religious leaders and Pharisees patiently waiting in silence. But they were demanding an answer. They were probably in his face, like, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? And what does Jesus do? But he writes in the dirt. Now, we don't know what he wrote. None of us know what that is. There's a whole lot of theories out there of what it is, whether he's writing the sins of the religious leaders in the dirt, or he's writing the law in Deuteronomy showing that he understands the, uh, what he's supposed to do. Um, some have suggested he was just doodling. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I like to think it's Jesus' own way of counting to ten before responding. <laughs> That's what I kind of like to imagine, that it's like, I mean, just consider the absurdity of the situation, right? Jesus must have been so tempted here to just lash out, to just smack him. But he's Jesus, so he didn't. But maybe he's writing, do not sin. Do not sin. I am Jesus Christ. I am without sin. I cannot sin. Don't sin. It will ruin everything. He's writing in the dirt. They keep pressing him for an answer. So he finally, he stands up and he responds and I don't know about you, but again, I like to imagine his response. I used to anyway as a very calm response, like a pious response, like, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's kind of what I imagine. And perhaps he did say it that way. But when we're considering the anger and the hypocrisy on display of these leaders, the embarrassment and the fear of his child, the woman there, and they interrupt his teaching to this eager crowd that was listening to the word of God, I suppose in my own interpretation, I see it as a passionate, emotional, powerful response, a plea for them to realize their own judgmental and hypocritical spirit. I think it's more like, I know you're trying to trap me, but it is not going to work. You cannot trap or trick the Son of God. Look, which one of us here is without sin? It is not you. And his reply puts the ball back in their court. He asks them a question. They know they cannot cast that first stone because then they would be claiming to be without sin. And they know they cannot equate themselves to be equal to God. That's what they charge against Jesus. You claim to be God, the Son of God? So they couldn't do that. We see that the older ones leave first. Some suggest because they're wiser. Others have suggested it's because they've had more time in their life to rack up their sin count. It's probably a bit of both. Some have suggested that they're just more aware of their sinfulness. Frankly, I think that gives them too much credit. That's for all of them, because I kind of see it more that they know when to accept defeat, that their trap isn't going to work. I don't think they have too much awareness of their sinfulness because it is not much long after this that they end up being responsible for killing Jesus. They didn't turn from their ways. They just tried another way to trap him. The accusers all leave, and Jesus has the woman standing before him with the crowd of witnesses, and his love and compassion calls the woman who was caught red-handed in sin— guilty as charged, put forward in shame, objectified by the leaders, and awaiting a death sentence, 
he respects her and treats her with dignity. He stands before her as the only one able to condemn her to her rightful sentencing, but as a sign and foretaste of what is accomplished on the cross, he does not condemn her. He invites her into a different way, a better way, a better life, a life of freedom from the penalty of sin. He never claims her to be innocent. He doesn't say what she did was okay, but instead invites her into that better way and commands her into a clean break with that sin. When Jesus forgives, he doesn't desire us to just run back into sin's arms. He longs for us to be forgiven and free, to flee sin and live. And that is good news for all of us. Now, when we look at this passage, there's a few different players involved, and it's always a helpful exercise to try and place ourselves in the sandals of each person or each place. So we know we can identify with the woman because of the freedom that we have received, because of the forgiveness that God has given to us. He has, we know his forgiveness flows to us. If we ask for it, he, we will receive it, and he will forgive us. And the forgiveness he gives her, it's the same he gives us. And when we look at Jesus, we know that is how he wants us to live. That's how he wants us to treat others. That's how he wants us to be. Because his forgiveness has flown to us, it's then to go out of us, to flow through us, to respond in love and forgiveness, to not hold things against others, but respond in kindness and grace and compassion. And then one that we often don't think about is the witnessing crowd. Think about them. They're just there, minding their own business, excited to hear from this Jesus uh, teacher who has incredible insight and wisdom. There's something very special about him. And then this huge, dramatic episode occurs right in front of them. They have a front row seat. They watch it unfold. Probably had no idea what to do. Maybe some of them want to speak up, but most of them probably like, this is between them. I'm going to stay silent and witness. And then they see the shame and humiliation on the woman's face. And when they were maybe first judgmental, like, oh, she was caught in sin, but also look at her humanity. I would hate to be in her shoes. Maybe they resonated with her a little bit. And then when they see Jesus' challenge and they go, oh, man, if I was an accuser, I wouldn't be able to cast a stone. No way. And then they see Jesus forgive her and charge her to live a life free of sin they probably feel sent to do the same. I dare say there's no question that anyone who witnessed that would be unchanged. They likely left feeling a little less judgmental, a little more forgiving, a little more generous, a little more trusting of Jesus, and probably a little less so of the religious leaders. And I'd like to just say, and that's the end. Let's sing. <laughs> There's one more group, isn't there? There's those Jewish leaders we have to consider. Because if we're feeling brave, we have to admit we can identify with them a little bit too sometimes. So let's do a little bit of an honest internal look today. You know, in our sinful nature, in our human nature, we can be so quick to accuse, to belittle, to cast judgment. 
as I mentioned last week, I mean, just consider this past year. Talk about a battlefield, right? For arguments, for frustrations, for disagreements between people you've always been close to. There has been a growing divide between everyone. Now, it's in our human nature to dehumanize others when they might not subscribe to our own view of things. Have you ever noticed that? That, that, it, that if they're on the other side, I don't want to see how we're alike. I only want to see how they're different. And that is fertile ground for broken peace and unforgiveness to spread and put down roots. I want you to think for a moment about someone on the other side. I don't care what it is, if it's, you know, maybe you're one of these people who hate pineapple and pizza, trying to make sense of these people like pineapple and pizza. I'm one of them. I like it. It's good. Pair it with a spicy pizza, and then you have two, and then you have the sweet and spicy. It's a game changer. Try it. Or think of politically, right, someone on the other side. Whatever view you hold on tightly to and you just can't make sense, think about that person on the other side. When we think of them, we often reduce them and dilute them to an assumption of who they are instead of who they really are. We know humans are very complex and not one-dimensional, but if they're on the other side, we want to view them as one-dimensional. And we reveal this reality when we begin our morning talking about these labels and these lies, and we know that we're all guilty of having those labels put on us, and we're guilty of putting them on others. Because if we throw someone into a group with a label, then that label, that idea of that person is true for everyone we label with that. And we're likely then not seeing the image of God in them. There's that distance that we create. Like I was saying, we get further away from them. And that distance between us is usually further than the actual difference of opinion. This isn't fun stuff to talk about, but I'm trusting it's resonating with you. And the reason we're talking about it during our forgiveness series is because that is a battlefield ripe with unforgiveness. And it's a usually a scary place of unforgiveness because it's not usually attached to a single person. It's attached to a group of people that is nebulous and that represents something. And we create our own stories. And in those own stories, we fill the gaps with our own ideas and in usually in ways that are less than helpful. And then, because the Word of God is so good and because... God desires more from us. It also can convict us. Last week we talked about Romans 12, 18, that if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Oh, well, I don't want to. It says everyone. Everyone. Ah, not just those that look like us or think like us or believe the same as us, but everyone. Live at peace with everyone. you've been alive and breathing for more than five years, maybe ten years, you know that the more we know someone, the more we start to understand them. You probably heard your parent tell you, you know, uh, it's 
spent, what is it, walk a mile in someone else's shoes and you'll understand more who they are. You know the expression, you've probably said it before more than I have. But that's the idea. The more we know someone, the more we understand their story, we may not agree with their decisions, we may not agree with what they say and do, but we can actually kind of empathize with their situation because we can see how they got to where they got. And that helps fill that gap of that distance that's often between us that usually keeps us from being able to find common ground of peace. But in our own disagreements, we tend to push away. We don't draw in, we push away. But God's response to us is to draw close. We've talked about this a lot before, how God is always drawing closer to us and he created us and he placed us in the garden and because of sin, he had to move us from the garden, but then he kept drawing closer and closer and closer until Jesus Christ came and came very close and then he sent his Holy Spirit to reside within us to unify all of us together. He doesn't dehumanize, but he meets us in the full extent of our brokenness to show us a way back to him. Now here's the challenge for us as Christ followers. We know the brokenness and the disagreements that are out there. But Christians are not called to add to the tension between us and them. We're also not called to avoid the tension between us and them. We're called to stand in the tension and rely and call upon God's grace and power to draw both sides together around what unites us instead of pushing us away because of what divides us. It's what it means to be a peacemaker. And in almost every way, it feels completely impossible. It feels like fruitless. But when we rely on God and his word and we're seeking his goodness, it is never fruitless. And Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For in bringing peace, God's kingdom breaks through. For his kingdom, it breaks through. Draws people together around him. So how have we been doing at that? It's a question for us to consider. How have we collectively as a, as a Christ-following community been doing at that? And how have we personally been doing at that? Seeking things that make for unity, purity, and peace instead of pushing others away in division. Now this woman with the casting of the stones, her accusers wanted to separate her from them. This woman is a sinner. She is a sinner. She deserves punishment. She has wronged us and God. But Jesus enters that space and clarifies that all are sinners. All deserve punishment. Only one is without sin, and he chooses not to push away, but to draw in close. He sees the shared sinfulness we all have, our shared humanity, and when we see that, we have to acknowledge we know we don't have all the right answers. We have blind spots, too. We have certain convictions we are clinging to that are wrong. We are holding on to some things tighter than we should be and others looser than we should be. In some ways, we might just have it wrong. But in the midst of acknowledging our shared humanity, 
we can then respond and rely on God's goodness and grace by doing the work within ourselves before we even enter into the peacemaking work we are called to do with others. So how do we do that? How do we need to go about this? Now, for some of us, we've been talking about maybe it is to notice those flaws and the hurts of, of, of not just others, but those within ourselves. Now, we know that uh, there is a powerful teaching that Jesus gives on this to acknowledge our own shortcomings first. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. First place we need to look is to God and then to our own hearts. If we're talking about seeking forgiveness, we have to be able to work through our own stuff first. Our own part of the story, and even to consider, did I play a part in this story of forgiveness that I haven't acknowledged or owned yet? A lot of times these things are two-sided. Certainly not always, but a lot of times they are. And this is where the Pharisees fell short with Jesus. They were so bent in their anger and frustration that they never considered their own stuff. They were so blinded by their desire to trap Jesus, they couldn't even see the truth as it stood before them. And so maybe for some of us, that is the work we need to do to carve a path forward for peace. To look at ourselves honestly and recognize, where do I need to do a work internally so that I can allow peace to flow out of me? Or maybe there's another work that you may need to do. Maybe some of you um, have been going through this forgiveness stuff and go, I don't have many other people to forgive. I feel like I've done that work, but honestly, I'm having a hard time forgiving myself. Because there's stuff I've done. I've played a role, and I'm carrying that weight still. It, that's my baggage. That is my luggage that I cannot seem to shed. And when you think back in your life, you see you as the problem, and you don't know how to let go of that. You don't know how to forgive yourself. And that's a hard work. That is a hard work. And what's at the heart of that? I wonder if on some level it's because we have a hard time accepting that God has already forgiven us. To accept that his word says if we call on him and with a contrite heart, a repentant heart where we... we feel the angst of what we've done and say, God, forgive me, I'm sorry. That his word says he will forgive us. He will forgive us. He won't just forgive us. He will remove that sin and those transgressions from us. And when he sees us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees his child. So I wonder if we have a hard time forgiving ourselves, if it's more we have a hard time trusting that God has forgiven us. The problem is, if we're having a hard time forgiving ourselves, it is buried in two very strong emotions. Emotions that this woman caught in adultery was feeling, and that is guilt and shame. Man, talk about some heavy chains. 
But what did Jesus say to the woman caught in sin? What does he say to you when you come to him? It is, I do not condemn you. I do not condemn you. He doesn't say, stay in this place now, in your shame, in your nakedness, in your brokenness. He says, go and live free from this sin. Go and sin no more. Don't do that again, but go and live in the fullness that I have given you. When you hear about this woman, do you think she just went right back to her old life? Or do you think she was changed forever? Changed forever. Because when we are met in our shame, in our guilt, in our brokenness, for all to see, when we cannot hide from it, and how are we received but with peace and love and grace and empathy and understanding, it diffuses the whole situation, it changes our heart, it compels us to live different. And because of that, even if we can't understand those people on the other side, Even if we can't seem to forgive ourselves, we will do this hard work to respond in kindness and goodness and on God's word, trusting that that is the life-changing antidote this world needs. Because it is found in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Guilt and shame in our own lives are often self-made dams that are put in the rivers of grace, preventing us from experiencing all the goodness of our Lord. Draw close to God. Ask him to remove it. And each day wake up saying, I am a renewed and freed child of God. You say it until you believe it because it is what God's word says is true of you. We cannot be peace bringers if we cannot find that peace within ourselves. So as far as it is, up to you. Seek shalom. Seek peace internally as you seek to bring that peace to others. So what have you been holding on to that it's time to let it go and trust it to God, trusting he is capable? My encouragement is to release it to him, for he can do immeasurably more than we can ever think or fathom. And that is God's third way. After all, when we can't see a way out of it, he finds a way every time. He brings peace into the midst of the madness, into the midst of our brokenness. He diffuses anger with peace. He responds to our shame with grace. And he sits in the tension, and he doesn't push away, but he draws people close to him. And that's what he is doing on a global scale right now. So that brings us to our challenge this week. The challenge is to carve a path for peace. Some of us is to identify where is there a plank in my own eye? Where do I need to actually do a first internal work and realize that I'm judging a lot of other people, but I'm not seeing my own stuff right now, and it's time to repent, repent of that and confess it and come before Lord Almighty. For others of us, it's to acknowledge those areas of guilt and shame that are holding us down and Accept the forgiveness that God has given you and to wake up again renewed to seek his peace internally and then externally. And finally, we remember that we're not alone in this journey. We have the very power of Christ living in us, within us through the Holy Spirit. And we know we're on our own, we're weak. 
We can hardly move a stone with our own strength. But with God and his power, he will move mountains. So my encouragement is for us to call upon the strength of the Lord, to rest in his presence, and to go to work to be a peacemaker. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May it be true for you and for me right here in our lives today. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks that in our shame and in our embarrassment, in our sin, you receive us with your love and grace. And God, so often we can't see the full picture, the full story of things, but we trust that you do because you have a kingdom perspective. You see all things of all time, all at once. So right here and now, we want to trust you in this process of seeking peace and forgiveness for our community. Lord God, we repent of the ways that we have added to the tension in this world instead of worked to diffuse it. Lord, we repent right now of the ways that we have bought into the lie of us versus them instead of seeing us all of your beloved children of God and the image of God within us. Forgive us, Lord, for how we have walked outside of your ways and your path. And Lord, we pray today that you give us eyes to see the work you are doing right here, right now, in this world. Show us our next step, God. Give us your power and your courage to do the hard work we need to do to be more like you. And while we do that, Lord, we rejoice in the grace and the goodness of you who are so strong and mighty that when we died, excuse me, when you died, we died along with you. Our sin died with you, and you rise us to new and meaningful life. So God, as we continue our worship, we pray that you meet us in our heart and our minds right now and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.